0: Luke, more than any other writer, any other gospel writer, talks about Jesus' prayer life. He's fascinated with it. How did he pray? Where did he pray? When did he pray? What happened when he prayed? And the information is given back to this gospel writer and he puts it here for us. And so we can follow Jesus' sandals and find him at prayer. We can hear what he prays. We can learn from it. Prayer is the Christian's vital breath, the oxygen of the soul. Yet most of us would, if we're honest, rather be on human life support than breathe in the clear, sweet prayer air in God's waiting room. But if you go to the deep place where nobody goes, far from the shallow place where everyone lives, You'll begin to breathe easier. I noticed it one day as I sat on the steps of my soul and waited for the springtime. Well, actually, it's always springtime outside the front door. It's only me that brings the winter. It takes a little while to feel the springtime in my heart, but as the spirit's quiet warmth begins to do the melting, I take a deep breath. Oh, clear air, so clear. Stuart and I were in New Zealand. As we got off the plane, I turned around and all of us on that plane after 15 hours in the air, I don't know what it was, were breathing deeply for more reasons than one. There is no air in the world clearer, I'm told, than in Australia and New Zealand. It is so clear and the sunshine is so bright. But it's that air that reminds me of what happens when you still your soul, the stilling of the soul, the listening part of prayer, how we have to get that right before we can hear the voice of God. And God says, hey there, human race, let's talk. And it begins with us listening, Mary of Bethany sitting at the feet of Jesus, looking in his face, just being there, not talking his head off. And prayer mustn't be divorced from our relationship with God. It's so strange how we do this. I got an email from one of our focus group leaders this week, delighted that we're addressing prayer. He said, in my efforts, our efforts, our group's efforts to recruit people to join our focus group, we're usually asked one question over and over. Well, what do you do? And when I respond that first we pray, I'm usually interrupted with the same question. Oh, well, besides that, what do you do? There's a mindset in this area that prayer isn't doing or being objective or productive at all. And when I respond that prayer is the first thing we do, and a continuing thing we do at every meeting, eyes begin to roll, people usually begin seeking some opportunity to get away. We've divorced Prayer, from what it is, simply our conversation with God. Think about a marriage. If, if I only talk to my husband on a Sunday morning and Wednesday night and at Easter and Christmas, what sort of marriage would we have? Prayer is communication with God. It's our talk with God. And no relationship can grow unless you have good communication. The better communication, the better the relationship. Prayer is for our sake. If your day isn't hemmed with prayer, it will unravel, someone has said. And it's also for God's sake. Prayer isn't about getting something for ourselves, but getting something for God. And that's what the Lord's Prayer is all about. It's all about Him. Him, not us. And if we're honest, prayer is the last thing, our last resort, and not the first thing in our lives. There's a very famous preacher in London called Spurgeon, you might have heard of him. His impact goes all over the world. And one day, a couple were visiting his church from outside the country, and they were met by the janitor at the door. They were early, and he said, would you like to see our church? And they said, oh yes, that would be nice. So he brings them in and they expect to go into the beautiful old sanctuary and he doesn't even look that way. He opens the door and they go downstairs and they think, where are we going? Into the boiler room? Yes, into the boiler room, which stretches all the way through this building. And he said, as he opened the door, this is the church and it was filled with people wall to wall, all on their knees. And the janitor, who wasn't the janitor but was Spurgeon himself, said, take a look. These people will stay on their knees until I am done preaching today. That's the church. A church is only as strong as its prayer. That's a very frightening and challenging thing. And Jesus modeled the priority of prayer. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he'd finished... One of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. There was something about Jesus. There was something about what he was doing. There was something about his face as he came back to them. There was something that made the disciples who were watching him say, I want that. Teach us to pray. As John taught his disciples. And remember, Andrew and John, two of Jesus' disciples were John the Baptist's disciples before they were Jesus' disciples. And so does this hunger, even just as they watch Jesus. And Jesus being asked that gives this pattern of prayer. And all the way through the Gospels, if you read, we get little glimpses of Jesus' relationship with his Father, what it was like. He and his Father were one, and he wanted his disciples to be one with him. He loved his Father. He lived for his Father. He lived through his Father, he lived by his Father, he lived in his Father. And he said, as I have lived by the Father, so you're supposed to live by me. Jesus loved his Father, he enjoyed his Father, he pleased his Father, he obeyed his Father, he served his Father, and he spent quality and quantity time with him. And so should I, and so should you. I just went through the Gospels and found every time Jesus was praying And it was quite extraordinary, actually. Great hour of doing this, and you can do the same. But I found at his baptism, it says, as he was praying, the Holy Spirit came and endued him with power to accomplish our redemption. And then it showed me that Jesus went into the wilderness to pray and to fast. And that's where he went after the devil. The devil didn't sort of come behind Jesus, I'm going to get you. No, the devil didn't want that confrontation in the wilderness. He would have given anything to get away from that. And Jesus went after him in the power of the Spirit and through prayer. And he dragged him from behind the rock and he overcame Satan. Prayer has so much to do with that. And then I look before the appointment of the apostles Do you know what it says? He went into a mountainside and he spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples and chose them. Before he chose those men for his team, he spent all night in prayer. I would have to tell you, I've only ever in my life spent two nights all night in prayer. Jesus did it before any big decision. When he needed wisdom beyond himself. Do you ever need wisdom beyond yourself? Big choices to make. Well, at least one hour. In Gethsemane, Jesus said, Come and pray with me. I need you to pray with me. And they fell asleep on the job. Do you remember those disciples? His three closest friends. They were exhausted. Jesus said, Well, flesh is weak. You are tired. The Spirit is willing. The Spirit's got to do something about the flesh. You've got to keep awake. Couldn't you watch one hour? Apparently, he expects us to pray for one hour, and it should be nothing it should be nothing. And so every time I see Jesus in prayer, I learn something else. And so did the disciples. And as they watched him and saw how prayer changed Jesus' direction in ministry or gave him wisdom or changed their whole ministry, actually, if you look in Mark chapter 1, starting at 38, Jesus is in the synagogue. He goes and heals Peter's wife's mother And then the whole town hears about it and, of course, gathers at the door with the sick and the lame and the blind and the lepers. And Jesus heals. And it says somewhere else in the Bible that every time Jesus healed, virtue went out of him. And he deals with the demons and he casts them out. And at midnight or beyond, he falls down on his pallet on the floor. And the four disciples, for he's only called four at this point, they are out like a light. But they're woken up very early in the morning by who? By everybody from the whole countryside that's heard about all the other healings. And they're all there. And they're so excited. And they say, Jesus, where's Jesus? I, I mean, we don't need to go anywhere else. The kingdom of God is going to come to us. And he's not there. Well, where is he? And so they go and find him. And he is praying, asking his father some pretty big questions. What are you doing? Everybody's waiting for you. What a success. And Jesus says, let's go somewhere else. What? Let's go somewhere else. Let's go to the small people, the little people, the villages. I came to preach. Not only am I here to help and to heal, but basically I've come to say the kingdom of God is among you because I'm the king and I'm here. And I'm going to preach the gospel. And that's the most important thing. And so Jesus was guided by his Father where to go and when to go and how to go. I read that in my own devotional life when I was absolutely flummoxed with what to do with a whole lot of invitations that had come from all over the world. Many of you say, How do you and Stuart know who to respond to and where to go? It is very difficult. Pray for us. We try to be strategic. We try to say which is the right thing, not which is the big thing. Which is the thing you want us to do? And as I read that, I said to the Lord, I don't want to make a mistake. We've got to make all these choices, where to go and where to preach and to teach. And he said to me, come early, Jill. Come early. He got up very early. And the Father explained it. And so I knew he wanted me to come early too. And that's hard, and the older you get, the harder it gets. But sleep deprivation is better than God deprivation. I hate that sentence. I wrote it. (laughs) But it's true. And if you'll come early, he'll tell you. He'll tell you. And so the disciples watching all this had this hunger to know how to commune with God, how to be close with God, how to hear God about kingdom work and find his will, and all of that. And so Jesus gives them this pattern. And the Lord's Prayer here, the short version, the longer one is in Matthew, is simply divided into two parts. First, this declaration of dependence on a holy, heavenly, awesome, mighty Father. About his kingdom, his glory, his name, his will. And then the second part is all about the life in the community that Jesus was creating, the community of the faith and the faithful. And there you talk about provision for that community life, to do the will of God and the work of God. And there you see about protection and what that means. And there you see about a life of forgiveness. And so it's really in two parts this pattern of prayer that we can use to help us as we are taught to pray by the Lord himself. So first, Jesus withdrew. And let me just go back to this one more time. Is it important? A child asked me, 12-year-old, if God is everywhere, why do we need to go somewhere? I love 12-year-olds. Love this. This is my age. God's got age. What am I doing with you big people? I just love those kids. If God is everywhere, why do you need to go somewhere? Good question. Is he more evident in some places than others? I have a little correspondence going with another child, 12-year-old. Let's call her Bethany. Dear Nana Jill, she calls me Nana Jill, I have a question for you. Sometimes when I go somewhere like church, I hear a really good sermon or something like that. And for the time I'm in the building, I feel really good. And I feel very new and refreshed. It's really hard to explain. Anyway, when I'm out of the building, it's gone. What's wrong? Good question. Do we have to be in a building? Building can help. The music can help. It can be conducive to us understanding we are in the presence of God. Yes, of course we're in the presence of God. Anywhere. But it makes us center down to that fact, doesn't it? And I wrote back to this little girl, think about your relationship with your mom when you're with her. Like Mother's Day. And somehow you're sort of conscious and you feel love for your mom on Mother's Day and it's a warm feeling. But then when you're at school the next day, maybe you don't even think of your mom at all, all day. Does that mean you love her less? No. You know you love her, you just don't feel it. This is another aspect of love, a settled knowledge that you love each other and that feels different. So, when you're in a church building, it's like being with your mom on Mother's Day. So many things in the building, the music, the atmosphere, hopefully that the sanctuary helps you concentrate on God. When you leave, it's sort of like being at school without her hope that helped her. But we rely far too much on our feelings where our prayer life is concerned. Far too much. All of us do. But we allow our feelings to dictate our relationship with God. I think of UK, St. Paul's Cathedral. I think of Cairo, Egypt, and a great cave in the mountains that holds 5,000 people, Greek Orthodox. I never wanted to leave that sanctuary. When I was there, I think of a small chapel for the family by my home in England. I think of the Catholic retreat center out here in Delafield. I think of the Protestant clergy prayer room near my house. Anywhere, inside or out, that helps distill the soul. Where's your sanctuary? Hmm? It's amazing what the outside, incidentally, the cathedral of God's creation does for the inside. Amazing what the outside does for the inside. And Jesus constantly, maybe because he couldn't get alone inside, was constantly out, out among the birds that his father made and the flowers that he made and just feeling sort of God's great church was a place that was very easy for him after all the dirt and the filth and the leprosy and all of this, it was somewhere to renew his soul. Stuart and I were in Vancouver Island, Canada, and we were talking our heads off, and it was spring. And we didn't even get out for four days, and we we hadn't had a walk or anything. And I just felt the Lord was saying, "Come, Come outside. Don't go to one more meeting you don't need to go to. Just come and walk with me. And my Stuart loves God's world just like I do. And after we did this, just had a walk instead of going to one more meeting. My husband caught the way that simple time in the woods renewed us both in God's sanctuary. Sunlight glancing through the trees, branches dance to summer breeze, eagle circle as your sky, redwoods reaching up on high, reminding us of you, Lord, reminding us of you. Warm as the sunlight, gentle as the breeze, vigilant as eagles, steadfast as the trees. So are you to us, Lord. So are you to us. Go walk, find a lake, park. I don't care. Just make sure you go to a certain place like Jesus did. It helps. And then, of course, address the Father. Abba, Father. By using this familiar tender name for God, Jesus transformed a formal theological exercise into an intense and intimate experience. And he taught his disciples to do the same. Abba, Father. I've had a lot of talks, interestingly, this weekend with people that say, I come from a traditional background. And you know, when I came into this particular group, the pray. I felt uneasy when we address God in such a familiar way, with our own words and our own language. It didn't sound respectful. Daryl Bock, in his commentary on the book of Luke, says Abba, the word itself, combines respect for the Father's authority with a sense of intimacy. Intimacy doesn't do away with respect. Just remember who you're talking to. That's all. Just remember He's holy. And you're not. That's all. My holy, heavenly, upper Father. Father dear. Yes. But a holy, heavenly God. He is God. And we are not. And so we need to know who he is as we pray. And we need to know who we are as we pray. And if we concentrate on his holiness, that holiness will become real in us. There's no talk of sanctification in the Lord's Prayer. It's presumed. When we think of who he is, holiness is an obvious... We cannot speak to God unless we have confessed our sin. And you said, but Jill, I came to Jesus and he forgave all my sin. Yes. If you think of this line of this pulpit as the timeline and God is here, and you get born, and you live, and you accept Jesus, and you go all along here, out, back, into the presence of God, and you accept Jesus here, he forgives you all your sin, all that stuff and all this stuff that you haven't even done yet. He forgives your sin. So why do I still need to confess it? Because of your fellowship with him. Your initial confession deals with your relationship. All of this. Deals with your fellowship, because if you have a child, a son, and your blood is in him, he is your child, he'll always be your son, but maybe he'll leave home, and maybe you'll have a row, and and what you need is to reconcile and say sorry, and your fellowship, that's why you need to go on confessing those things that stop you talking to him and listening to him along this way. Your sin has been dealt with, your sin as a whole. But your fellowship needs to stay intact. And if you feel far away from God, it might be because those things aren't dealt with. Remember that he is holy. Concentrate on his holiness. Nietzsche, who was not a very nice man at the end of the Second World War, he had influenced both Hitler and Stalin. He was the thinker and writer of Germany during the Nazi regime. Thielica, Helmut Thieliker, was a Lutheran pastor, still out of jail. Bonhoeffer had just been killed, murdered by Hitler. And Thieliker was probably the last of God's great voices from the Lutheran church against Nazism at the end of the war. And he decided to try one more time and to go and see Nietzsche and explain Christianity to him, which he did. And Nietzsche listened for half a day and asked many important questions. And in the end, he sat back and he sighed and he said, you know how much Your Christians will have to look more redeemed before I, Nietzsche, will believe in your Redeemer. You Christians will have to look more redeemed, more holy, before I, Nietzsche, will believe in your holy Redeemer. So little redeemed, so little like him. So little I've changed from what I have been. So little like Jesus, so people can see his power and his glory living in me. So little redeemed, I'm ashamed of myself. I need transformation and spiritual wealth. So I'm going to surrender so people can see the living Lord Jesus living in me. How dare I be so little redeemed? How dare you be It is so important because people are looking at us and are saying, you Christians are going to have to look more redeemed before I believe in your Redeemer. And that's what this prayer is all about. Holy Father, forgive me for my unholiness that I am so little redeemed. And so all of this happens when we go to prayer and our mind is set on the Father, our Abba Father, our Holy Father. And then we turn to the life in the community, the second part of the prayer. There is not one single, singular pronoun in this. Not one. I, me, my, mine. Give me today my daily bread. Forgive my sins. No, it's all ours. Our Father. Not my Father. Our Father. And Jesus is trying to teach I'm making a community, don't you see? I'm calling out a called-out people called the church. There is one church, did you know? No, Jill, there's many, many churches. No, no, no. One church. Christ the head. And it meets in different buildings, in different places in Milwaukee, you see. And in one of the buildings, we might sing a little differently and pray a little differently over here, but one church... A community. And Jesus said, I'm giving you a prayer to remind you of that community. And you cannot pray, give me this day my daily bread, for it is our, is there anyone hungry around me? I remember standing in the sanctuary, the old sanctuary, long time ago when we had a bread pantry in the church, when we had food to offer for people that were hungry. And you would be amazed how many people came from the inner city to get a bag of groceries from our pantry. And I was, I think it was Christmas Eve, I I was sharing my hymn book with a young woman I'd never seen before. She was a single mother. She had two little children next to her. And she fainted. And we helped her, and I got her out. And I found out she didn't have food. She had been selling her blood to pay for food to feed her children. This is Milwaukee folks. And I thought... What am I doing praying, give me today my daily bread, my Christmas dinner? Here's somebody, our community. And so the intent is for God to turn our eyes outwards, into our relationships. Forgive us our sins as we forgive each other. Now this is the part, and the next bit, Deliver Us From Evil, that I've struggled with most of all. Still struggle with. Mystery. Does it mean, when it says in Matthew, Jesus speaking, if you don't forgive people, I won't forgive you. It can't mean that. Because then we would earn the forgiveness of God. And we know it's all of grace. Then what does it mean? Forgive me my debts. As I forgive other people. Oh no, I hope it doesn't mean that. How do I forgive grudgingly? When I have to. Do I want God to forgive me like I forgive other people? No, I don't. I want God to forgive me like God forgives me, right? So it can't mean that. What does it mean? Well, basically in the big picture of it all, it means that we extend our hand to the grace of God. Many of us extend our fists, but we have to extend our hand to the forgiveness of God, and that's all of grace. And as we receive his forgiveness for our grubby little lives, the wonder of it begins. And as we understand what we have done to God, how we've offended him, how we have hurt him, the size of what he's had to forgive us, as we understand that we've been hitting God with a club with our sin, and we turn around and see people with little sticks hitting us, it becomes very easy, for he or she that is forgiven much loves much. He and she that understands the size of our redemption, what it cost Jesus to do for us. Then, as he has forgiven us, how did he forgive us? Freely, fully, everything. Then, somehow, out of the wonder of what he's done for us, flows our forgiveness to other people. I find that this is our hardest work to forgive other people. We're waiting. What are we waiting for? For them to say they're sorry, right? Don't wait until they've done their work. They might never say they're sorry. God doesn't wait for us to repent before he offers us forgiveness. And nor should we. We cannot do their work for them, but we can do ours. And I'll tell you where it's done. On your knees, You have to forgive them on your knees before you ever forgive them standing up face to face. The work must be done in here. And those of you that have come and you're holding grudges and who cannot understand for some of you have been dreadfully injured and that's the word Jesus uses. The offense, the thing somebody has done, the debt they owe you that has offended you and hurt you. It's huge for some of you. I am appalled to hear how we treat each other and how people are treated. Absolutely appalled. But you have to forgive one, one incident at a time. Lewis Smeads has written a book called Forgive and Forget. It's a classic for me. I give it out all over the place. Ordinary people forgive best if they go at it in bits and pieces. I love this. And for specific acts... Forgiving carte blanche is silly. Nobody can do that but God. And he is God and I am not. That helped me. Okay, I forgive in little bits. So this person has done this to me. They have done that, that, that. There's so much. I can't just say I forgive you, all of it. No, no. What I have to do is incident by incident, I have to go there on my knees and start bit by bit by bit and when I'm there I have to be honest I have to tell God where I am well I don't want to forgive them yet well I thought I'd forgiven them and then I saw them again face to face well no I don't want to ever forgive them and I'm only going to forgive them if they come and ask me to right tell him where you are and it can be anywhere and then drop the conditions will you Drop the conditions. Until I understand why they did this to me, I'm not going to forgive them. Anybody there? We don't need to understand why they did it. We need to understand. We don't need to understand. Before we forgive them. Okay? You may never understand. But we are to forgive as we have been forgiven freely. Fully, whether they ever respond or not. He forgave us no strings attached. So if our hems are full of anger and bitterness and we can't accept his ongoing forgiveness for our own ongoing sin, we'll never be able to offer forgiveness Others and the devil wants us mired in the past in what could have, should have been what we did to others or they did to us. He wants us to stay offended, he wants us to stay upset, angry, he wants to neutralize us because that'll neutralize you for the kingdom of God and the will of God and the purposes of God. It's got to be dealt with. What are you doing, harboring it? What are you doing, cherishing it? What are you doing, condling it? Let it go. One prayer at a time. One day at a time. Pray God will deliver you from the evil one. From the temptation to keep it. It's all in context. Deliver us from the evil one, from this temptation, to neutralize my life, to make me a bitter person an angry person, a no-use person for your kingdom and your work. Deliver me from the power he has had in my life. Help me with this. Some of you don't even believe in the devil. I had somebody talk to me. I'm finding it difficult, Jill, to believe in a personal devil. Listen to me. Behind all the dangers in our life and behind all the dark menaces that overshadow it, there is a dark, mysterious, spellbinding figure at work. Behind the temptation stands the tempter. Behind the lie stands the liar. Behind the death and the bloodshed stands the murderer from the beginning. And he wants to tempt you away from your relationship with God. That's his whole thing worship me he says and he is bitterness and he is anger and he is rage and he is unforgiveness oh god deliver us from that that's what we need to pray he will tempt us away from our relationship with him He came to deliver us. After this event, Jesus meets a demon immediately. And he drives it out. And Jesus is the one that can do that. He wants to do it for us. Don't mess with him yourself. You can't. You're too young. Like the little girl that said, when the devil knocks on the door of my life, I send Jesus to answer the door. Right? Send Jesus to answer the door. And the finger of God will do that work for you. We have so much going for us we have the Holy Spirit there's one prayer it said I read it you one prayer he'll always answer give me the Holy Spirit how much more will your father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit and it occurs to me that there might be somebody listening to me that has never received the Holy Spirit none of this that I've talked about today will make any sense unless the Holy Spirit is living in your life you sure you've got him? has he come in? He's the one that will explain God to you, your Father, and he's the one that will give you the power you need and the enlightenment and deal away with the confusion. Make your life full and generous and satisfied. Holy Spirit, so in this closing prayer, maybe that's the prayer you need to concentrate on and forget everything else. Oh, Holy Spirit, come into my life. You are bringing with you God's forgiveness. You're going to cleanse me. You're going to come and live forever in my heart and give me salvation. And just remember that Jesus is praying for you, will you? You know that? Read Hebrews. He ever lives to intercede for us. There was a time a few years ago when I was under a cloud and we had some very hard things happening in our family. And I remember one day being so depressed and so down. I couldn't get out of bed. I don't know if you've ever been there. I don't want to get up. I just want to sleep. Forever. But I had to get up. There were things to do. I had to go to some responsibilities and so I dragged myself out of bed and I started to get dressed and as I did my spirit began to lift and lift and lift and lift and by the time I got to the breakfast table which I didn't think I could eat because of the knot in my stomach the knot was gone and I was hungry and I ate a hearty breakfast and and I began to feel the peace and the clear air around me and I thought, what is happening? and as I put my coat on And opened the day to go out and get on with this kingdom work. My soul was tap dancing. And I said to the Lord, oh, I get it, I get it. The people that love me that know about this shadow on our lives, they're praying for me. My friends are praying for me. And quick as awake, a voice said to me in my kitchen, I'm praying for you. What? I am. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you, Jill. Do you know he's prayed for you today? Do you know what he's prayed for you today? Well, you need to study John 17. You'll get some idea. He's praying for us. He's praying that we'll be delivered from the evil one and from the temptation to be anything less than 100% for God. He's praying for us. And he's praying... We'll know how to let it go and to forgive other people. He's praying for us. Would you simply please be the answer to Jesus' prayers today? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, oh, Abba Father, Father dear, what grace and what goodness to offer to us our redemption, and with it this ongoing relationship with you, this oxygen for the soul, this ability for us little people to talk to you, a high and holy and heavenly God. Thank you. We are overawed. We are reduced to size. We worship you. And Lord, many of us sit in these pews and We hold grudges and we need to let them go. They've done us no good. We have to forgive these people as you forgave us freely, fully. Whether they ever say sorry, whether we're ever reconciled is quite irrelevant, Lord. I hear that today and I don't need it. So I come to your cross and I let it go. Deliver us from the evil one. Help us to go out intent on being your person in your world and nothing less. And Lord, would you redeem us fully and make us holy that nobody may look at us and say, Well, they'll have to be a lot more redeemed before I believe in their Redeemer. Forgive us, Lord. Make us like you. We ask it for you, Jesus. For your sake. For your glory. And in your name we pray. And now may the blessing of God our Father. The love of Jesus. And the fellowship of his indwelling Holy Spirit. Be with us now and evermore. Amen.